we are going to return to that text from Isaiah 35 near the end of our time today. Uh, but we are continuing a conversation that we started last week. Um, so if you were with us last week, we're just going to pick up sort of where we left off in Mark chapter 7. But before we get there, you know, earlier this year we spent some time working our way through the book of James, more or less verse by verse. And if you were with us during that series, you probably remember these words from the beginning of James chapter 2, where he said, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality. Show no partiality. And then he sort of gives us this practical example um, of how this would maybe work itself out in a corporate setting. He says, if somebody comes into your assembly wearing a, a nice gold ring and fine clothing, and then a poor man comes in wearing rags, says, don't give the, the wealthy man with great clothes the best seat in the house and force the poor man in rags to stand at the back of the room. And then in verse 9 of that chapter, he goes on to say, if we show partiality, we are committing sin. If we show partiality, we are committing sin. And it's sinful, I think, at least in part, because partiality destroys the possibility for belonging. And in God's kingdom, nobody is out of reach. Nobody is beyond belonging. Have you ever felt like you are on the outside looking in? Anybody? Maybe it's just me, but never quite hip enough to sit at the cool lunch table in high school, or maybe in your place of work, even today, or in your group of friends. Throughout Christ's ministry, we find him constantly combating some of these inside, outside mentalities. Being on the outside, it's a lonely, it's a lonely and can be a very desolate place to exist. And Christ continually is combating those mentalities. We've seen this for a couple of weeks now as we've been working through Mark chapter 7. And this is really quite an action-packed section in Mark where he has spent some time describing some pretty wild, miraculous things that Jesus performs. In the next chapter, chapter 8, we see Jesus feed thousands of people with a meager lunch. That story that we read last week, we saw him heal the daughter of the Canaanite woman, and on and on it goes. This morning, those supernatural head-turners are just going to continue. Is everybody familiar with the term rubbernecker? Rubbernecker, it's used to describe folks that slow their car to a snail's pace in order to gawk and figure out why there are seven police cars with their sirens blaring and their lights on. It's a term that is derived from the physical act of turning your head and straining your neck in order to see what's going on. And that, that's kind of what I picture happening in this section in Mark. These miracles that Jesus performs throughout this section are turning heads. Jesus is gaining a lot of attention. People are noticing what's happening, which leads to more and more encounters as people start to think, well, maybe this man is going to be a solution for some of the problems that I'm experiencing. So we continue reading Mark chapter 7, this section of all of these wild, miraculous feats. We pick it up where we left off, verse 31. We read this. 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus has left the predominantly Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon where the story that we read last week took place. And now he heads back south again to the predominantly Gentile region of the Decapolis, which is located to the east and south of the Sea of Galilee. So we are dealing here with potential interaction again with a lot of Gentile folks, which if you haven't noticed over the past couple of weeks, this is a major theme at work in Mark's gospel. Now remember, at the beginning of the chapter we covered last week, Jesus, or two weeks ago, Jesus subverted some of those dietary restrictions which are stipulated in the Jewish law by declaring what? By declaring that all foods are clean. And then in the story we read last week, we saw Jesus heal the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, a, a woman who by every metric should have been considered an outsider or someone who is unclean. And admittedly, Jesus provides that healing only after suggesting that he shouldn't because she is a Syrophoenician or a Canaanite woman, and he has come to feed the, the children of Israel first. Now, if that's the case, if Jesus has come only for the children of Israel, which we argued last week that it's not the case, that this was sort of a straw man that Jesus was setting up to be torn down in dramatic fashion. Furthermore, if he is only interested in feeding Israel, as it were, by what, why does he continue to intentionally put himself in a position where he's going to come into contact with a lot of Gentiles who are going to want him to do stuff for them? And I, I think this is precisely one of the points Mark is drawing out of some of these stories. Because Jesus, once again, puts himself in a position to interact with outsiders. Perhaps this is for his own safety and in order to maintain some anonymity to some degree. But I think something else that is going on here is that Mark is communicating that these folks were absolutely important in the work that Christ has come to do. So if this is an important part of who Jesus is, if this is an important part of what he did while he was walking on this earth in the flesh, we would probably do well to emulate that example. You know, as followers of the man who willingly walked into territory dominated by people unlike him in many ways, unlike him at least ethnically and religiously, if this is who we are following, we, we probably shouldn't try to avoid those who are unlike us just because it's uncomfortable. It probably isn't wise to insulate ourselves from those with opposing ideas or opposing values or those that come from a different cultural or ethnic background or those from a different socioeconomic class. I think that's a big one in our society. We, we probably shouldn't seek to insulate ourselves from those with differing religious beliefs just because it feels like there's some tension there or it feels like our beliefs and our faith is constantly being challenged. 
As the, the British theologian and missiologist Leslie Newbigin said, Christianity was born into a religiously pluralist world, and in that sense, pluralism does not represent a new problem for the church. In other words, encountering ideas that differ from ours isn't a new challenge, and it's not a challenge that we should back away from. As the church, I think we should actually be willing to enter into those spaces intentionally with grace. So this theme of encounter with outsiders continues today in Mark chapter 7. We continue reading in verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So as soon as Jesus arrives, this new location, he doesn't get much of a break. Some of the locals bring, bring to him a man who undoubtedly faced great challenges because of his physical condition. He was deaf. And we're told that as a result, he had a speech impediment. So not only did this condition or this disability create a lot of difficulty for him personally, but it also had abundant social implications as well. In a society where this sort of a condition pushed somebody further and further to the margins of life. And Jesus, when faced with this individual, unsurprisingly really, if we've been paying attention to what Mark has been doing in this chapter, Jesus invites this man into a very close, a very personal encounter. So we could think about it this way. An undesirable, somebody who has disregarded culturally and societally, invited in and desired. We continue reading in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. It's interesting. And after spitting touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, if you're like me at all, this seems a bit uncivilized. He put his fingers in this man's ear. Okay, that's strike one. That's pretty disgusting, at least in my view. But it gets worse. He spits in his fingers and touches the man's tongue with his saliva. Is anybody in here signing up for an encounter like that? <laughs> I personally am not. Just a, a few weeks ago, I had breakfast with somebody, and by the way, it's nobody in here. And I don't think they'll be listening to the podcast, so I think it's safe to share. But during breakfast, the guy was just plowing through his food. I think his plate was cleaned before I finished a single fried egg. And unfortunately, the speed with which he was devouring his food did not prevent him from talking at a similar pace. And so at one point, a sizable speck of his food made its way from his mouth on to my plate. I know. <laughs> I know, Chris. I just felt that righteous indignation rising with, but I didn't really have, he was paying for my breakfast. So I couldn't really say anything. I mean, am I supposed to say, take it easy, slow down. You're, you're going to get through, you're going to get through your food. 
and, and maybe if you slowed down, it would prevent some of your half-chewed food from ending up in my hash browns, which I know this is disgusting, so I apologize, but just think about what Jesus is doing here. Spitting in his hands, touching the man's tongue with his saliva. It's pretty gross. Now, it's quite possible for the man in this story, he wasn't nearly as grossed out as we might be on hearing this story, because rituals like this weren't all that uncommon in that day and age in some areas with pagan healers who would travel around and participate in these cultic practices for healing. And if this man in this story we're reading had sought healing elsewhere, it's likely or possible at the very least that he encountered something like this elsewhere. But, but did you catch what Mark records there in verse 34? Jesus takes the man aside into a private spot, puts his fingers in his ears, gross, then spits in his hand, touches the man's tongue with his saliva, goes through this whole ritual, and then he looks to heaven and sighs. Looks to heaven and sighs and says, Ephatha, or be opened. I think that sigh is remarkable. And I think it's possible that that tiny detail points us again to the humanity of Jesus. I mean, just try taking a deep breath or sighing. You can go ahead and do it now. Well, what sort of emotions or memories does that stir up? Quite possibly stressful ones or or negative memories. And yes, at times, a sigh can be a response to a pleasant experience or to experiencing a comfort in some way. But I think a lot of times, and it seems at least to me in this story, what, what's going on is that the heaviness of life is weighing down a little, a little bit on Jesus. And he responds in this visceral way with a sigh. So while a lot of the stories that we read in the Gospels, especially stories of these miraculous encounters where, where Jesus is just doing something supernatural and out of this world, a lot of times these stories can be read in a fairy tale, idyllic way. It's just sort of picture perfect with clean lines and nothing's out of place or askew. But I, I think to read these stories in that way would cause us to miss the heaviness of the work that Jesus is involved in. His ministry is one of ongoing tension and conflict, even heartache at times. There was a lot of pressure from the outside as crowds are beginning to be increasingly captivated by this miracle working man, captivated by this great teacher. And so they started pressing in to try to get his attention. Maybe you're reminded of that story we read last week that portrays Jesus seeking escape from some of that overexposure to the crowds. I, I think in all of these stories, we, we find clues that his ministry was taxing. I mean, constant exposure to the effects of sin in people's lives was bound to take its toll. So maybe in this part of chapter 7, that sigh is a sign of the exhaustion felt when seeing the plight of humanity. As Jesus is coming into contact and discovering how heavy it is to live life in a world that is broken and tainted by sin, 
and he sighs at the heaviness of that reality. So while we read a lot of incredible stories, especially in the Gospels, about our Lord, I think this simple detail points us again to the humanity of Jesus and the pressure he felt, and thus this detail can serve as an important reminder for us of a couple of things. Number one, and this is no surprise, I'm sure, to anybody in here, but life in general is not a walk in the park for anybody. But what we might need to periodically remind ourselves of is that life isn't a walk even a walk in the park even when we're living in the kingdom of God. Coming to faith in Christ doesn't eliminate the heaviness of life in this world. Seeking to serve others in the manner that Jesus calls us to serve is going to be taxing. It just is. It's going to be exhausting at times. And quite honestly, it will probably be troubling because the people we are trying to serve are experiencing very difficult circumstances, just like we are. And as we come alongside them and and walk beside them through some of those difficult seasons, it's going to be heavy. It's going to be taxing. It's going to be exhausting. You may feel like your only adequate response is to sigh. But as Dallas Willard once said, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we don't have to. He died on the cross so that we would join him. So so following Jesus, we die to ourselves for the sake of others. And, And sometimes, maybe even a lot of times, that is going to mean carrying the heavy weight of our brothers and sisters so they don't have to bear that burden alone. And when that is our calling, when we find opportunities to help carry the weight of our brothers and sisters, it is absolutely essential for our perseverance that we also find times of rest. That we find time to take care of our souls so that we can be of any use to ourselves but also to anybody else. This is what we're going to be spending five weeks dealing with in more detail later this fall during our series on Sabbath rest. Let's continue. So Jesus goes through this wild ritual. He sighs, says, be opened. Then we read this in verse verse 35. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I love that detail. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus heals the man that is brought to him. He instructs them not to tell anybody, and they immediately go out and start proclaiming it. Now, as the father of a three-year-old, I probably identify most closely with Jesus in this instance. You know, you give an instruction, and it's as if it hasn't been heard at all. Don't do this, and the more zealously they do it. But, but I also sympathize with the people here. They are amazed and ecstatic about what has occurred. And appropriately, I think their response is praise 
and proclamation. Look at what this man has done for me. He's done all things well. Come and see. Bear, bear witness to his greatness. I think the response we find on the part of the people is not surprising at all. I mean, this is a man who had been cut off from society in many ways because of his physical condition. First of all, because his condition made something as simple as communication quite difficult. It made relationships with other, uh, others a challenging endeavor, and it also represented a variety of disadvantages socially. It pushed him further and further away from other people and further and further away from a place of belonging. But Jesus, in this story, slows down, slows down and sees the man. Does something as simple as look the man directly in his eyes. I think a lot of times there's little more than we can do to bestow dignity and speak to the humanity of individuals we are interacting with than just looking them in the eyeball. It just brings dignity. Have you ever had an interaction with somebody and it just constantly feels like they're their mind is somewhere else, or they're looking over your shoulder seeing who else they might go talk to. Just the simple act of giving direct eye contact, eyeball to eyeball, really does something to speak to the dignity and humanity of those we are interacting with. And this is exactly what Jesus does here. He slows down and sees the man that everybody else disregarded, takes this man that was pushed to the margins of life into a private place to have this personal encounter. He slows down, sees the man, takes him away from the clamor of the crowd for some focused attention, and then he heals the man and effectively in this healing makes a sense of belonging once again a possibility. But I think even more importantly than making a sense of belonging societally possible for this man, he communicates that the ability to belong was never lacking with Christ. That it isn't his whole body or his healed body that makes belonging possible with Jesus. He could always belong. He could always belong. Yes, he opens the door for belonging with other humans, but communicates, you've always belonged here. That was never impossible with me. And I think this becomes an incredibly hope-filled passage for that reason. Because I think many of us at various times in our lives and in certain circles have that fear of being forgotten. Have that fear of being overlooked or left on the outside. Have you ever been there? I, I've been there. And it is a lonely and desolate place, wondering if you're ever going to find a place of belonging. Afraid that your life is going to be spent just on the outside, maybe even close enough to gaze in, but never quite close enough to belong. In the example of Jesus throughout this chapter, and in this story in particular, we are reminded that while those fears may be legitimate, and those fears may come to pass when we're dealing with other people, those fears may come to fruition, 
But when we're dealing with our God, Jesus Christ, those fears are always unfounded. So find comfort this morning. Find comfort. Jesus sees you. He notices you when others are looking over your shoulder. He's looking in your eyes. He's slowing down to see you. He invites you and welcomes you in. He doesn't leave you on the outside. If you've been left on the outside a lot, And I would imagine most of us in here have experienced that. Left on the outside. Jesus is inviting you. He's got a seat for you at the table. We're talking about the one that saved a seat at the table for Judas at the Last Supper, even though he knows Judas is about to betray him. Yet he's got a seat with the rest of the disciples. If he's got a seat for Judas, he's got a seat for you. He's got a seat for me. It is perhaps no shock at all that the lectionary pairs this text from Mark chapter 7 with that section from Isaiah 35 that we read as a part of our scripture reading this morning. And I want to read through that text from Isaiah 35 again. Isaiah 35 is a chapter is situated right at the end of this larger poetic section within Isaiah where the prophet is pointing ahead to, to a day of judgment, final judgment, and a day of salvation at the hand of the Lord. And he's been making the argument that the Lord is a strong ally. The Lord is an advocate for the people over and against the corrupt earthly powers that are at play that are intent on the destruction of the people. And so right at the conclusion of this whole poetic section, Isaiah says this in verse 1 of chapter 35. The wilderness... And the dry land that ever felt like your place of existence. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Wilderness in the desert. Now those terms carry a lot of symbolic significance for the people of Israel. For obvious reasons. The the people of Israel who were delivered from slavery and made their exodus through the desert. And then spent years wandering in the wilderness. A lot of times... feeling that, that dominated this experience was desolation and loneliness. And now what we find in Isaiah, the hope for the future, what is yet to come, the language used is rejoice. Your past has been one of desolation, isolation, loneliness, desert and wilderness, but rejoice and be glad. There will be joy And great singing because the Lord is coming and he will make weak hands and feeble knees strong and steadfast. So trust in the Lord. 
That text continues in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Be strong and fear not. Not because there's nothing that should cause legitimate fear. Not because your existence is not going to be defined by that sense that you're constantly in the desert and the wilderness. But be strong and fear not because the Lord is coming and he will save you. He will give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He will give mobility to the lame and words to the one who can't speak. He will welcome in the one who has been cast out. Give a place of belonging to the one who is forgotten. See the one who has been overlooked. When Jesus comes... He transforms the barren desert into life-giving springs. Rejoice. There is reason to rejoice. Even if you find yourself in that lonely place of desolation that feels like nothing but a desert. As Jesus enters our world, as Jesus enters our lives, he heals, he restores, he forgives our sins. There is reason to be glad and rejoice. Would you stand this morning? Kevin, if you all want to come up. Amen. This morning, as we celebrate around this Eucharistic meal, be encouraged. Find comfort in the fact that Jesus knows you. He invites you. He sees you. He wants to commune with you. When you feel alone, for good reason, when you feel forgotten, maybe because you legitimately have been forgotten by others, you're not forgotten by God. He's not looking over your shoulder, looking for somebody else to meet with. He's he's looking you in the eye. So be encouraged this morning. And as you are encouraged, may we also be challenged by the example of Jesus. May we be challenged by the welcome that we have received. Challenged to open our hearts. Challenged to open that seat next to us for others find themselves in that place of desolation and loneliness. Be encouraged. Be challenged. To give somebody that is forgotten a place to be seen. And let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Lord Jesus, as you 
saw this man this man that was forgotten this man that was overlooked as you took him aside looked him in the eyes we believe that you demonstrate something that is central to your character and we ask this morning that you would remind us that you see that you know us you are with us even now. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, we believe that you are meeting with us through these elements in a mysterious way. Would you make your presence known to us in these next few moments? Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?